following the sermon in response, we'll sing Psalm 118, the stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we come to the end of what we confess about the Apostles' Creed. And this afternoon our focus turns to three foundational worldview issues. Now, whether people come to it consciously or not, everyone has a worldview. Now, most often, it's just assumed. People don't think about it very much. It's not something that's really considered too deeply. It just is. But our worldview is made up of those foundational, fundamental principles that guide our thinking and our actions. And we can think of worldview in terms of a series of questions and the way that we answer them. Who are we? Who am I as a human being? What is humanity? Why are we here? What's the purpose of my life? And then the next question is, what's the problem? Since it's clear that there is an overarching problem in this world, in life, That's a given for most people. So we need to define what the problem is. And there's a lot that depends on how people will answer this question. We all know that there's a problem, but defining that problem is a life-defining issue and nothing less. And then if there is a problem, then there must be a solution. Or at least a potential solution to that problem. And so that's the next obvious worldview question. What is the solution to the problem? And one, one more worldview question. What happens to me when I die? Again, there's a lot that's riding on the answer to the question. And we can look at it this way. We can use an atheist, an atheistic worldview as our example. An evolutionist who doesn't believe in God. Who am I? Well, he'll answer this question by saying, I'm the product of billions of years of development which was not directed by anyone or anything. Through a large number of of random occurrences, genetic mutations, natural selection, the human race came into being. So what's the problem? Well, that, that... question could be answered in any number of ways. Now at bottom, the problem may be that, that life in reality has no meaning and no purpose beyond the propagation of the species and survival to do that. If you believe that we're here on earth as the result of pure chance, if you believe that there's no purpose or will behind anything, then an answer consistent with the answer to the first question would have to be that one. And then, what's the solution to the problem? Well, simply put, in the atheistic, evolutionistic worldview consistently held, there can be no solution. But many atheists do believe that that we need to develop our own meaning of life because it's impossible to live without one. That was the view of a group of philosophers called the existentialists. 
they said that you have to make up the meaning in your life. And then you have to live in accordance with the result. You have to live with what happens based on the choices that you make. Now, life in the end is ultimately meaningless in itself. So you're the one who has to give meaning to your own life in order to live. So there may be any number of problems. We can think of many of them. A long list. Poverty, injustice, oppression, whatever, inequality. And then the solutions that go with them. And you make up a meaning and a purpose for yourself to help others, to make the world a better place, to do good however that's defined, or to enact change or or to lead to change in some way. Now that leads to a real inconsistency in worldview. But we can be very thankful indeed that the vast majority of atheists don't live in consistency with their worldview. Because otherwise the world would be an even worse place than it is. And what happens when I die? Well, according to the evolutionistic atheist, once I die, that's it. My life ends, my body rots, and I am no more. I didn't exist before I was born, neither will I exist in any way after I die. So the end of biological functioning, you draw your last breath, that's the end. Period. So this life is all that there is. So that's, that's the atheistic worldview, and the various religions of the world also have different ways of addressing these worldview questions themselves. The problem may be defined as it is in Buddhism as my personal desires. And then for Buddhism, the solution to that problem is extinguishing those desires until we live a life when we finally have no desires at all. And then what happens after I die, according to the Eastern religions, I cease to exist as an individual, and then I become one with the universe. Now, our answers to these worldview questions can be based, and we do base them on what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the triune God. He is the the foundation. He is the source of our existence. We're human beings. We are the final, the result of the final act, the crowning act of God's creative handiwork. We were created in God's image. So we were created to serve Him. We were created to worship Him. We were created to rule and develop this creation on His behalf. The Father is our Creator. The Son is our Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. And we also confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now this shows us the problem, and it also shows us the solution to the problem. We live in a, what we could call a post-Christian culture. And the understanding of the problem and the understanding of the solution to the problem is not a given as it perhaps was in previous generations. Even when our Western culture, our Canadian culture, was culturally Christian, where the Christian faith may have been outwardly prevalent, where the forms of the Christian faith remained, but the substance 
had he wrote it. Even then, there was still some understanding that the problem with the world is sin. And the solution to that problem can only be found in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the evangelical, evangelistic preaching up until the 20th century could take that as a given. A given that people understood themselves to be sinners. The vast majority of of people had at least some conception that there was a problem with them, that there was something wrong. And that problem was sin. It was just part of the the dominant worldview. It's what's called the the meta-narrative now. And that's the story, the overarching story that that a culture lives by. The overarching story that defines everything about life. Now today, we can no longer take that as a given because there's very little concept of sin or the fact that we are sinners. And where there is no no understanding or widespread understanding of the problem of sin, there's no burning desire to find the solution. If you don't know that you're suffering from a fatal disease, you're not going to go out looking for a doctor. But God has revealed both the problem and the solution, and He's done, and done that in His Word. And that forms an important part of the most basic confession of the Christian faith. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So we begin with the reality of a personal God, a holy God, the triune God. The God who reveals Himself in creation and the God who reveals Himself in Scripture. He communicated that truth to us in His Word. He revealed to us that we were created good and we were created in His image. We were created at peace with God. But when our first parents fell into sin, when they rebelled, they brought all of their descendants along in that rebellion with them. So that's our problem. We are sinners. We are by nature rebels against the King, against the Most High God. And the only solution is forgiveness. And that's an important part of the good news, the Gospel message. God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life but will graciously grant to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. As a believer, as a member of God's holy Catholic Christian church, I share in Christ and all His benefits. And one of those benefits is His righteousness. His perfect faithfulness to His Father. His perfect obedience, which God graciously grants to me, to us when we trust in Christ. So our faith unites us to Christ. We become one with Him. So His satisfaction, His perfect payment of the price for sin leads to this miraculous turnaround. God will no more remember the sins that I've committed in this life. He's not going to remember my sinfulness. He's not going to remember my sinful nature. My original sin, the sin in which we were all conceived and born, is no longer going to be remembered. And the actual sin, our actual sin, the sins that we commit each and every day, daily adding to our debt, 
is no longer going to be remembered. They were placed on our Savior. He bore the weight of God's wrath against sin on the cross. And so we confess our sins are forgiven. So there's also a positive side to that, and that is that God grants us the righteousness of Christ. So His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Through His Spirit, He works that righteousness in us. So not only are we considered to be righteous in one sense, as God looks upon us as being righteous in Christ, but we are actually transformed. And we're actually transformed not into perfect, sinless beings, That's never going to be the case in this life. But into people who can legitimately be called righteous. Just in the same way that Noah and Job and Anna and Simeon were all called righteous in Scripture. Now the problem, as we define it, which is is one of these worldview issues, the problem is huge. We can't minimize it, we can't excuse it, we can't explain it away. It's the problem of sin. That sin separates us from God. It makes us God's enemies. And because of it, we deserve death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, eternal punishment. And that makes God's solution all the more glorious. Our sins, as horrible as they are, as vile as they are for each and every one of us, as reprehensible as our sins may be, they're completely covered because of Christ's satisfaction. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we actually see, so that we understand the depth of sin, the reality of sin, the sinfulness of sin, and we see the horror, the awfulness of it, and that allows us to understand forgiveness. And it allows us to understand and to rejoice in the immensity of what that forgiveness actually means to us. So God has revealed to us the problem. He's also revealed to us, well, He's provided in the first place, and then He's also revealed to us the solution to that problem. But then there's that one remaining worldview question left, and that is, what happens to us when we die? But we also confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So this life is not all that there is. As we can see in the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, the fact of life after death, everlasting life after death, puts life under the sun, life lived in this world, in its proper perspective. In James chapter 4, verse 14, James tells us, he says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So life is short. We know that. We feel that to be true. And that feeling, that feeling that life is short, is only or can only be explained in one way. And that is the fact that we were actually not created initially to live for only a short time. Just think for a moment of somebody like Methuselah. Children will know that Methuselah 
was the longest-lived man in the Bible. Now, he lived for 969 years. An average life expectancy for a Canadian today is around 81 years. Less than 10% of the number of years on earth that Methuselah lived. But just imagine Methuselah approaching his 969th birthday. You can imagine him thinking, wow, life sure is short. And Psalm 103, verses 15 to 18, describes the brevity of life. And it says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But then the psalmist compares the brevity of man's life with the attributes of God. And says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His, keep his covenant and remember to do His commandments. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, that same theme is taken up once again. And the prophet says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. The people are like grass. And again, there's that comparison with God. The comparison with His Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. And Peter and James also place this life into its eternal perspective. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. And again, those words of Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And James, he relates this truth especially to the rich. And the rich may especially be tempted to find their meaning and their purpose in this life and in their possessions and in the things that they can acquire and the things that they can accumulate. Brothers and sisters, in a rich society, this is our temptation as well. But James says in James chapter 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Those are words that each one of us need to take to heart. Peter says we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable even though our flesh is like grass, even though we're here today and gone tomorrow, we're like the flower of the field, we've already received the precious gift of the life everlasting through faith in our Savior. We have been born again of seed that is incorruptible, seed that will never pass away. And this happens by means of the living Word. 
And that seed of a new life is implanted by the Holy Spirit. And so that means that the life everlasting isn't something that we just look forward to in the future. It's something that we have now. It's something that we already experience here in this life. We feel in our hearts the beginning of eternal joy. So our life has meaning. Our life has a real, genuine purpose. We know that we are not just the products of chance. We know that we're not just here leading a meaningless existence, living meaningless lives until we finally take our last breath. We're put in a casket which is lowered into the ground where within generations nothing is going to be left. We know that in this purposeful life, this meaningful life, we're not God's enemies. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been made righteous. We have the beginning of a new obedience. We have the fruits of the Spirit. We've been regenerated. We've been given new life by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we know this is tempered by the fact that we are all still burdened with our old sinful nature that we have to struggle with every day of our lives. We feel the beginning of eternal joy, but we haven't yet received its fullness. We still have that to look forward to. And again, this is another fact of life that helps us to keep from getting caught up in this life under the sun. We look forward. We look forward with an eager expectation. We look forward to possessing perfect blessedness. A blessedness such, no, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man conceived. A blessedness in which to praise God forever. Which is the purpose for which we were created in the first place. To praise our God. And so, brothers and sisters, all of this is ours. We can confess all of this. We can say all of this because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. All this is ours because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. All of this is ours, not because of our own wisdom, not because of our own goodness, but because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so in theological terms, what we're talking about is soteriology. We're talking about the doctrine of salvation. What salvation means, how it is that we're saved. And we're talking about eschatology. We're talking about the doctrine of the last things. And so our soteriology and our eschatology are integral parts of our worldview. If the dead are not raised, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But Paul doesn't speak about the resurrection in a vacuum. He doesn't consider eschatology as an interesting topic to debate. 
an interesting topic to discuss in the abstract. There are many young Christians who get fascinated with eschatology. They get fascinated with the book of Revelation, what's going to happen in the end times. What's the end of time going to bring? They get fascinated with controversies about what Revelation has to say, what Daniel has to say, what Jesus says in Matthew 24. But eschatology is much more than just an abstract doctrine. It's much more than just a doctrine to discuss and debate. Paul says this, he says, do not be be deceived, talking about eschatology, talking about the end times. He says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And he says, I say this to your shame. So the Corinthians, they were living as if this life were all that there is. And isn't that what we so often do as well? We can be very forgetful. We can be very focused on the here and now. We can be focused on today and what today has to offer us. Or tomorrow or next week. Or what's going to happen in the summertime. And so we forget to have this eternal perspective. And so we need to return. And we need to return again and again to the fundamentals of our faith. The most fundamental doctrines, perhaps they seem to be the most simple doctrines that we've heard again and again and again, but we need to return to them and we need to meditate on them and we need to internalize them. And we believe in the forgiveness of sins. So how can those who have received such a precious gift continue to live in sin? We believe in the resurrection of the body, not eternal life of the soul, a disembodied spirit, but the resurrection of the body, which means eternal life on the new earth in the presence of God. We believe in the life everlasting. So how can those who believe in the, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting continue to live as if this life here and now were all that there is? And so brothers and sisters, meditate on these foundational truths. They are, as I said, they are the milk of the Christian faith. They are the basics. But we never get to the place at which we no longer have to be reminded of these basics. Knowing and and confessing the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let's seek to live as forgiven people, as people who enjoy eternal life already and who look forward to the resurrection as recipients of the greatest gift imaginable, Life, life in abundance here and now, and life without end, in which we will praise God in perfection, without the stain of sin, without the daily struggle with sin, without the results of sin, without the pain, without the suffering, without the tears, forever. Amen.